Jones, Australia's leading voice. Well, good evening. Thank you for tuning in. It's free and easy to watch. Tell your friends and family to go to the website adh.tv and click the Watch Now button flashing in the corner. Viewers right across the country are getting in touch with me and loving the new show. I thank you all for your very kind words and messages. Remember, you can have your say on any topic we raise here. Just email alanjones at adh.tv. I read them all. There's plenty of talk about the Liberal Party and it will continue for months and so it should. Why is this important for our country, you ask? Because we need a strong centre-right political party in this country and an opposition which has ticker, willing to hold this new Labor government to account. The problem with this country is that we purport to believe in free speech, yet demonise anyone who expresses a view contrary to the groupthink. I've always said that it's apparently only free speech if you're saying what your critics allow you to say. Dare to differ, you're pilloried, from one end of the country to the other. Trust me, I've had some experience. The latest victim of this cancel culture, this attempt to silence anyone who makes some politically correct elites uncomfortable, or God forbid, offend someone, is Bernie Finn. He's in the upper house in the Victorian State Parliament. He represents the Western Metropolitan Region of Melbourne. He was a Liberal Party MP until the school prefect, Matthew Guy, the Victorian opposition leader, a bloke you wouldn't feed, kicked him out. That's right, the Victorian Liberal Party, the so-called party of free speech and free markets, the home of liberty, voted to expel Bernie Finn from the party for having an opinion and being outspoken. The New South Wales Liberals, remember, tried to do the same thing here with Tanya Davies on the same issue, abortion. Now, the opinion may not be held by you, and that's OK, but surely Australians are sick and tired of walking on eggshells, frightened to say what they think in their own country. Each year we commemorate Anzac Day, didn't those who fought for our country, didn't they do so to defend the freedoms that too often are now being taken away from us? As one viewer wrote to me yesterday, if what he said isn't illegal, I don't understand how you can get away with cancelling people due to hurt feelings or thinking a different way. Well, that's what the putter thinks. There is more to this story. Is this payback by the Victorian Liberal leader because Bernie Finn in the past has been outspoken on Matthew Guy's weak leadership. So this blamange, Matthew Guy, a political deadbeat who's totally out of his depth, a gold medalist in the boring stakes, his big tough act is to expel Bernie Finn from the party. The Victorian election is this November. Under Matthew Guy, the Victorian Premier Daniel Andrews will be returned by Victorians who'll run rings around him. Uh, Andrews lost some bark during the lockdowns, no doubt about that, but he's a cunning politician and he's delivering on key projects for Victorians. Meanwhile, the Victorian Liberals are too focused on punishing people who express a view they find unfashionable in the leafy suburbs of Melbourne. I'm pleased to say we'll speak with Bernie Finn tonight. Keep watching on the website, adh.tv, or, hang on, our brilliant app. Now, oh, God, it's been a struggle to get this on board, but we've got it. And you can watch us now on the big screen. If you've got a smart TV, go to the App Store and download ADH-TV, no dot, ADH-TV. You can watch us on the big screen or on the website, adh.tv. Stay with us.
Well, to the latest political news, the thumping headache for the Liberal Party continues. Where do things stand? Well, Labor needing 76 to form government have a confirmed 74. The Coalition have 56. The Coalition will win Sturt in South Australia and they are ahead by a cigarette paper in Deakin in Victoria, the seat of the Assistant Treasurer Michael Sucker, and ahead by a cigarette paper in Gilmore. Should Andrew Constance win there, and I think he can, and he deserves to, deserves to, it'll be the only seat won by the Coalition in Saturday's election. So give Sturt, Deakin and Gilmore to the Liberals. They will finish up with 59 seats, a loss of 17. The ALP seems certain to win Brisbane, Lyons in Tasmania and McNamara in Victoria, though Lyons is tight. And in Brisbane, the Labor candidate, Madonna Jarrett, has to finish in front of the Greens candidate, but that looks likely. That would give Labor 77 seats, enabling them to govern comfortably in their own right. While that means the virtual impotence of the Teals in the lower house, I suppose it also means they'd be happy that their brand may not be damaged by being seen to support the Labor Party. The reality is most of the Teal seats in formerly Liberal Blue Ribbon electorates will not come back to the Liberal Party. And instead of pandering to them, the party has to look away from the rich, the wealthy and those who can purge their guilt over accumulated wealth by supporting policies that won't damage them because they can afford the fallout of some of this stupid stuff that the Greens and the Teals are on about. The Liberals have to concentrate on what should be their heartland, the land of the worker, the bloke on Struggle Street, with all the problems those voters face on housing, interest rates, mortgage repayments, supermarket costs, petrol prices, a concern over their children's education, the list is endless. I'm sorry, but these people in Struggle Street don't give a stuff about climate change when they know that China is emitting more carbon dioxide emissions in a fortnight than we would push out in a whole year. That is, if carbon dioxide is the problem. You'll never hear them tell you it's the source of all plant life, but back to this result. Ten Liberal seats have fallen to Labor at this stage and Brisbane looks like joining them. No Teal candidates in any of those seats. So forget this lurch to the Teals movement within sections of the Liberal Party as the party must reform itself. To lose 17 seats means the Coalition has lost 22% of the seats it held in the previous Parliament. It will now have the lowest proportion of seats as a share of the Parliament since the Liberal Party first ran at the 1946 election. The thumping 90-seat victory by Tony Abbott in 2013 is very much in the rear vision mirror. Think of it. Under Morrison, the coalition's been reduced to 59 seats. Abbott won 90. Do the maths. 31 seats different. Abbott was stabbed in the back by the lefties and the climate change devotees, the liberal teals, we should call them, and it's been a massive downhill slide since. Turnbull lost 14 seats and now Morrison, 17. Parallel to all of this is the point that I've made, not always publicly, but certainly privately for months and months, going back well into last year, that if the government leadership had changed, the coalition could have won this election. Today it's clear, and I know it to be a fact, that there were MPs who saw the party going over the cliff who urged Frydenberg to challenge. But Josh even bumped down with Prime Minister Morrison at the lodge during August and there was genuine concern that he'd become too close to the Prime Minister to sense how unpopular Morrison was becoming with voters. Josh refused to turn against Morrison. He's always been loyal to the leader, but as I've told him often, there's no point in being loyal to false causes. Then, of course, Prime Minister Morrison took off to Glasgow 
to say me too to the Labor Party's climate change policy, that along with the government's handling of the Brittany Higgins rape allegations and the Prime Minister's outburst against Christine Holgate, that was the beginning of the end. Throughout all of this, it was Prime Minister Morrison's judgment that was always crook. Had he called an election at the end of last year, several things would have been clear. Frydenberg, for a start, was well in front on any polling in the suit of Kuyong. Monique Ryan, the paediatric neurologist who won the seat on Saturday, had at that point not been heard of. But by the time Glasgow and the Omicron outbreak wreaked havoc on Australia's reopening and its summer holiday plans, by budget time in March, Frydenberg was in trouble, the government was in trouble, and the ritual burying of the Liberal Party had begun. One point I'd make clear. If the Coalition now holds the lowest proportion of seats as a share of the Parliament since the Liberal Party first ran at the 1946 election, you won't reclaim those seats by listening to people like Matt Keane and making a further lurch to the left. That is what has pitchforked the Coalition into the trouble it faced last Saturday. It's going to further accelerate the trouble if those people control Coalition policy. Well, last night when I interviewed Di Lee, who has been splendidly embraced in the former Labor seat of Fowler, with the most stunning upset amongst the 151 seats contested last Saturday across Australia, I made the point that Di Lee had once been a member of the Liberal Party, but she was suspended for 10 years for forming an independent team to run for the mayoralty of Fairfield City. 10 years. And I made the point, when you see, pardon me, when you see the tremendous support for Di in the seat of Fowler, we should note that the Liberal Party, whose judgment on all of these things is rubbish, the Liberal Party failed to pre-select her for a spot on its upper house ticket in the New South Wales state election of 2015, and it failed to select her in the local government elections in September 2016. Now, you've heard her on this program. The reaction by you to the interview has been telling, but she got 10 years suspension because she was in breach of the Liberal Party's constitution. But as I said in this schizophrenic Liberal Party, Turnbull's constant attacks on the Liberal Party, that he was afforded the privilege of leading, mistakenly, I might add, but Turnbull's attacks are in breach of the Constitution. Keane's attacks, Matthew Keane, the New South Wales Treasurer, on Catherine Deves, are in breach of the Constitution. Turnbull and Keane passed without sanction. Daly got 10 years. Which brings us to Bernie Finn. Who is Bernie Finn? Well, he's a Victorian parliamentarian a member of the Legislative Council, formerly a member of the Legislative Assembly, formerly a DLP candidate for the federal seat of Corangamite, but he's been a member of the Liberal Party for over four decades. He joined the Liberal Party. He's been the number one candidate on the Liberal Party ticket for the Western Metropolitan Region in the Legislative Council since 2006. He was re-elected in 2010, 2014, 2018. During the period of the Bailiu and Napthine governments, Bernie Finn served as chairman of the Victorian Parliament's Electoral Matters Committee, and he was previously on the coalition front bench as the shadow parliamentary secretary for autism spectrum disorder. Is he controversial? Well, he can be. For example, he was critical of the federal government's carbon pricing scheme, arguing correctly in 2013, quote, there has been no global warming for 17 years. Is that controversial? Well, all that's beside the point. Bernie Finn MP has been expelled from the Liberal Party in Victoria. As I said, he's been a Liberal politician for nearly four decades, but he allegedly has caused outrage. Only today I had an email from Heath, 
one of my viewers, which said in part, the Victorian coalition have ousted Bernie Finn for his anti-abortion stance. I thought it was the mantra of true conservatives to be able to agree to disagree. Instead, as Heath writes, Bernie's been given the flick. Writes Heath, this is the sort of thing I would expect from Dan Andrews. The LNP should have learnt from the result of the federal election that if you look similar to Labor, you lose. If they keep going like this, says Heath, they'll lose the state election in November. Bernie Finn joins me. Bernie, thank you for your time. Look, just on the Heath email... That's a pleasure, Alan. Uh, just on the Heath email about true Conservatives being able to agree to disagree, it does seem today, doesn't it, if you disagree with a certain party line, you're cancelled. And that's what's happened to you. Yeah, well, that's, that's exactly right. I couldn't believe it. Uh, when uh, all this broke last week, uh, I mean, I, uh, what, I, what I said uh, on Facebook is something that I've been saying uh, since I was about 15, uh, since I realised that, that life, in fact, does begin at conception and, and these are real little babies. Mm. Uh, and uh, I, I just could not understand the outrage, uh, particularly as Matthew Guy, uh, up to that point anyway, uh, actually agreed with me. Uh, so I, I, I do not understand and I, and I don't even begin to understand the bizarre nature of what's happened uh, here in the last uh, week. You posted on Facebook that you were, quote-unquote, praying for abortion to be banned in Victoria, including for rape victims. Now, you and I would both agree that many people would disagree with that, many women would be offended, but yes. have yes. we reached the point where you can't express a personal view without being cancelled? Well, it seems that way. And, uh, you know, as I said in Parliament yesterday, um, this is not the Liberal Party that I joined. Uh, and it's not that it's no longer the party of Menzies It's no longer the party of Howard or Bolte or Kenneth or anybody who believed uh, in, in freedom of speech up until this point. And I, I just I, I'm heartbroken, to tell you the truth, having been a member of the Liberal Party for 41 and a, and a bit years, joined when I was living in Sydney, uh, working up in, in radio in Sydney all those years ago. Uh, and uh, to see what has happened now. Uh, is is heartbreaking, and you know I have been contacted by so many people today that I have known over the years. Uh, many of them have told me that they have uh, resigned their, their membership of the party. Uh, they have said that uh, they are they are so very angry uh, at the way uh, that I have been treated, and and have just totally lost um, totally lost any understanding of where the party is going. And I have to say, you know, if, if you're a Liberal Party and you don't believe in freedom of speech. Are you really a Liberal Party right. at all? 100% correct. You've expressed a view with which many people agree that, quote, killing babies is criminal. Now, many people write to me to mm. say if the life of the unborn child in the womb is terminated, that is OK. But when that child is born, if someone terminated its life, that's a criminal offence. Can you understand that people are confused? Well, it's, un it's very confusing that some people seem to think that the trip down the birth canal makes some sort of extraordinary difference because the only difference between uh, the baby inside the womb and the baby after uh, he or she is born, the only real difference is that one's on the outside. Uh, that, 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 is, that is the bottom line. Um, there, there, is, there is no real difference between a baby at nine months inside the womb and a baby at nine months outside the womb. There, there is no difference at all apart from, uh, from perhaps place of residence. Yeah. Bernie Finn was alluding to the Supreme Court of the United States, which we've discussed here with Peggy, where the celebrated Roe versus Wade case is again in the spotlight. Jane Roe, in 1973, a mother, challenged Henry Wade, the district attorney of Dallas County, re her right to abortion. The Supreme Court ruled then that the Constitution of the United States protects 
a pregnant woman's liberty to choose to have an abortion without excessive government restriction. That decision struck down many US federal and state abortion laws and fueled the ongoing abortion debate, which still rages today about whether or to what extent abortion should be legal, who should decide the legality of abortion, and what's the role of moral and religious views in the political sphere. Now, Bernie, this brings you in here because you were merely expressing your moral and religious views. You're a Catholic. I think you've got six children, have you not? I do, yes. Well, look, I've got to say to you, Alan, this religious argument uh, is, is a furphy. It's a furphy. If the Catholic Church came out tomorrow and said, we support abortion, I would walk. I would walk. I would never, I would never darken their doorstep again. This is a matter of biology. It's a matter of science. You know, we, we're constantly told by people to follow the science. Well, that's what I'm doing. That's exactly what I'm doing. I am following the science that tells us that babies are uh, a human in the womb. But they are they are little people. And, uh, you know, anybody who doesn't understand that or accept that obviously needs to do a bit of biological training uh, because that is the way it is. It's, you know, this is not a, a religious or a philosophical thing. I'm not, I'm not into telling people when the soul enters the body or anything like that. I've absolutely no idea. Uh, but I do know that these babies um, are human beings. And as such, they have the same rights that you and I uh, have and, uh, and should be protected. In, re in response to the comment that abortion should be available for those who've experienced sexual assault, you said that, and I quote, babies should not be killed for the crime of his or her parent. That's uh, a strong point. Amplify it, Bernie. Well, the bottom line is that um, irrespective of how the child gets there, the child is still a human being. The child is still um, a, a, a baby uh, and, and needs the, the full protection of the law. Now, you know, I've spoken to a number of people this last week uh, who uh, have contacted me, women um, who, have, um, uh, who have been raped uh, and who uh, uh, really uh, uh, have decided or they had decided for them that they weren't going to have an abortion. Uh, and they've been so grateful so grateful that their baby was able to be uh, was able to be kept, uh, and and they have been absolutely delighted uh, as a result of that, and, and and very happy as a result of that, um, uh, even to this very day. I've also been contacted by a number of um, uh, a number of, uh, of of children or adults now, but children then um, who were conceived in rape, and obviously they're very happy uh, that uh, that they are they are still alive. So this this um, I don't know, this this giant panacea. Uh, that abortion seems to be that uh, if you've got a problem, have an abortion, it'll go away. Um, that's 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 just a nonsense. Well, uh, you, if, you've if got into trouble. Is you, you've got into trouble because you posted an anti-abortion statement on social media, which simply said, "Civilized societies don't kill their young." How is that controversial? Mm. Well, I don't know. I really don't know. And uh, for um, for you know, leaders of our party to think it controversial is absolutely astonishing. I, I thought it was a pretty straightforward uh, statement and, and, and one that uh, some would agree with. Your leader uh, said... I would, hope that, that most, I would hope most would agree with. Yeah, I mean, your leader, Matthew Guy, said expelling you was proof, or words to that effect, that the coalition in Victoria were a, quote, sensible alternative government. So what, you cancel those with whom you disagree? Yeah, well, that, that's the bottom line, and uh, I, I am just uh, staggered, absolutely staggered, uh, uh, that, that, that they've been able to to do this, uh, to uh, um, stomp on on a view that is very, very 
prominent in the community. Uh, I mean, there are a lot of people who agree with what I say. Um, a lot of people disagree, but, that's, but right. that's that's the joy Absolutely. of living in a democracy. That's We're a liberal democracy. Absolutely. We should be able to agree and disagree. I mean, yeah. uh, Guy says, that Matthew Guy, the most invisible leader in Australia, Matthew Guy says, I expect people to be able to uphold respectful discourse. Was there anything that you said not respectful? No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. In, in fact, I went, I went very, very soft on that one because I know the, the sensitivities surrounding uh, the, the, the overturning of Roe v. Wade. Um, and I just expressed my view. I, I was praying. Perhaps that's what they object to, that I was praying. I don't know. Uh, you know, we, we do, after all, live in Victoria, and uh, Victoria is, a, uh, is, is close to being a style and a state well, these days. So perhaps they were objecting to be praying. I know. Uh, but, uh, you know, my, my, my view my view is very strong. It has been for many, many years. Absolutely. Uh, and interestingly enough, interestingly enough, when they first raised this with Matthew, he said, well, you know, he said that just that. He said, well, that's Bernie's view. We've known that for years. Mm. And uh, the day after, uh, obviously after somebody had revved him up, um, he, he came out punching. Mm. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I just find it astonishing. It that, is astonishing. Um, and they wonder many, now yeah. and they wonder now why the Liberal Party is in trouble. And if we don't stand up for yep. these sorts of freedoms, you can't expect the public to have their support. Bernie, you hang in there and keep going. We need people who I say will, things Alan, as they see them. People won't agree with you, but that's beside the point. The freedom to express a view has to be an undiluted freedom. So it's good to talk to you. Thank you it for does. your time. There's Bernie. Thanks, Alan. Great to talk to you. Not at all. Bernie Finney's been expelled from the Liberal Party for having a view. Unbelievable. Bernie Finn in Victoria. Well, look, the teals can go on about climate change and Adam Band can go on about ending all fossil fuels. But as one of my very bright correspondents has said simply, the Green Energy Express is about to hit the wall of blackouts. Consider this. If you stop all coal, gas and fossil fuels, who suffers? We do, of course. Australia currently have 19 coal plants. China has 1,110 in operation, 92 in construction, and a further 148 in the planning stage. India has 285 plants in operation, 26 in construction, and a further 22 in planning. Those figures come from the Global Energy Monitor. The United States, 240 in operation. But I repeat, China, 148 in pre-construction, 92 in construction, 1,110 operating. What the hell are we on about? Being martyrs to the world. Only last month we were told in an update from the Australian energy market operator, which runs the electricity grid, that the East Coast wholesale price of electricity jumped 141% to $86 a megawatt hour in the March quarter, compared with 36 a megawatt hour this time last year. Obviously, the price of coal has escalated due to Russia's war in Ukraine. There is, in case the Teals don't understand it, or Adam Bant doesn't understand it, a global energy crunch, which is driving up wholesale electricity prices in Australia, where coal-fired power stations supply about two-thirds of our electricity. Bant and co. want them closed down. Lisa Zembrot from Schneider Electric, one of Australia's largest corporate energy advisors, has said simply, there is no doubt power bills will increase. Prices will need to reflect the increases we've seen in the wholesale market. Now, we're supposed to have had an election about the cost of living and rising consumer prices. Well, the energy price feeds into almost everything we need and use. Yet you've got the New South Wales Treasurer, Matt Keane, advocating we go down the Teal Road, the Adam Bant Road, ban fossil fuels. 
Thankfully, there are people out there with scholarship and courage who continue to warn us that the man-made climate crisis is a fraud, that natural cycles control the climate, that net zero emissions is a destructive and impossible green dream. My warning, reliable, affordable electricity for industry and homes will be best supplied by coal, gas, hydro or nuclear power. And here is the world scrambling to get coal supplies and Australian politicians and bureaucrats have delayed coal exploration and development for decades. And people like Bant and the Teals want to abolish coal exploration and all fossil fuels. We can mine and export uranium, but we can't use it for ourselves. I'll tell you what, if renewables are such a saviour, then they obviously don't need subsidies. So why don't we have an energy policy which says all electricity generators should be treated equally? No special taxes, no subsidies, and they should be obliged to provide their own backup power and their own connections to the grid. Let's see where the renewable disciples would turn then. Of course, we're told to listen to the science. I could quote a stack of scientists, but Richard Lindzen is the professor of meteorology at MIT, world-renowned as an atmospheric physicist, a publisher of 200 scientific papers and books. On the push to 100% renewables and net zero emissions, he said, quote, what we will be leaving our grandchildren is not a planet damaged by industrial progress, but a record of unfathomable silliness, as well as a landscape degraded by rusting wind farms and decaying solar panels, unquote. What about Michael Schellenberger? the world-renowned environmental activist for 20 years. In his book, Apocalypse Never, Why Environmental Alarmism Hurts Us All, he apologised in July 2020 for, quote, the climate scare we have created over the past 30 years, unquote. Of climate change, he said, it's not even our most serious environmental problem. Schellenberg said, once you realise how badly misinformed we have been, it's hard not to feel duped. Duped indeed. One of my correspondents has written to me today and said, Alan, I voted on Saturday. Are we on planet Earth or with a bunch of loonies? Well, only you can answer that question. Well, each week, as you know, we take you to Britain for the latest on what's happening in Britain and Europe. And we're joined by the highly regarded and very popular with our viewers, David Maddox, the political editor of The Express Online. You can read David at express.co.uk. David, thank you for your time again. Now, at the end of last week, you were telling us that Boris Johnson's grip on the Conservative leadership had strengthened after the Metropolitan Police decided not to issue the Prime Minister more fines for lockdown all those lockdown-breaking parties in Downing Street. And you wrote at the weekend that Boris Johnson had received a major boost with the Conservatives eating into Labor's lead at the polls, to such an extent that polling experts were saying that the negative political effect of the Partygate scandals of lockdown-breaking in Downing Street is beginning to fade. But then yesterday, a photo, presumably leaked by Dominic Cummings, the Prime Minister's disgruntled former aide, shows the Prime Minister drinking at a leaving party for one of his staff in November. So, how does that change things? It, I, I'll tell you, it's, it's like a yo-yo. Uh, you, you never quite know where, where things are going to stand. So, yes, you're right. At the end of last week, just one fine, essentially for having cake for nine minutes on his birthday. <laughs> uh, and it looked like Boris was... was 
was on McLean. He didn't even eat the cake. That's a uh, that's <laughs> a great irony of it. I mean, yeah. it's like, uh, but 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 you know, this week the photos start emerging. We have a big report due to be published any any moment. You know, and it's uh, uh, and uh, MPs are talking again. Tory MPs are talking again. And uh, in fact, I was sitting down with loyalists who are just fed up with it and actually just wondering whether they ought to ditch him again. You know, the conversation just keeps going in and yeah, out uh, each way. And, and part of the problem is that these guys can't make up their minds. Yeah. You know? what, about, what about this senior civil servant Sue Gray's report into lockdown parties? Now, that's about to be released, I understand. Um, mm. Was there a meeting ahead of the release of Sue Gray's report between the Prime Minister and Sue Gray? Uh, I understand the Grace team sent a formal invite to Boris Johnson in response to a request from Number 10. But the Times newspaper reported on Monday night that Johnson had urged Sue Gray to drop plans to publish her report during a secret meeting earlier this month, allegedly asking, is there much point in doing it now that it's all out there? What can you confirm here? Well, uh, Downing Street have denied the Times story. Uh, that doesn't mean that it's not true. Uh, I, I, uh, but certainly the meeting happened and, and Downing Street suggested that Sue Gray had asked for it and actually it was it was them who wanted it. So, you know, there's a, there's a bit of trickery going on there anyway. But, um, you know, I, I, I think that there, there is a feeling here for a lot of people is that we just want to move on yes. from this nonsense. Yes. It's sucking the life out of a government. They can't get on with the important stuff, you know, we've got a cost of living crisis, you know, like everybody, every other Western country. Yeah. Uh, we've got things getting out of hand. And Not quite. They were obsessing about a few things. Well, I think this Dominic, this Dominic Cummings, I mean, he's a grub, isn't he? He wrote on his blog that photographs would soon emerge that show Boris Johnson had, quote, obviously lied to the Commons and possibly to the cops. Now, I suppose the fact that Cummings has worked at Downing Street means he would have potentially damaging material to leak. How damaging to Johnson is this Dominic Cummings? He, he really is. And, and Johnson was warned at the time when he took Cummings on. He's a, he's a, he's a real live wire, completely, completely unreliable, uh, very bright uh, and uh, actually very good at kind of strategy and things, but totally destructive. He was quite destructive in the Vote Leave campaign as well during the Brexit time when he was running that Dominic Cummings was. And uh, it's, uh, you know, this is, this is, I'm afraid, chickens coming home to roost to Boris. He was told and warned not to bring this guy in, mm. you know, and now he's a kind of ghost at the feast, mm. you know, uh, causing as much mayhem as he possibly can. All right, crystal ball, and let's get off this, but the crystal ball, what will you be saying to me this time next week about Boris Johnson? <laughs> Uh, what I'll be saying to you, it's it's so hard to predict. Uh, I my my feeling is he will still be there, and <laughs> he will be uh, looking, uh, you know, and, and trying to put this in the past. That's my feeling. <laughs> well, let's get on to something really pleasant. It's being said the Queen has ticked off nearly every mode of transport known to mankind, from horses to helicopters and yachts the Concorde and gold coaches, but she toured the Chelsea Flower Show in her own chauffeur-driven buggy, a golf buggy, described as a six-seat luxury leisure car. 
and she toured the Chelsea Flower Show and the buggy belongs to the Royal Household. This would have really gathered the imagination and hope of British people, would it not? Yes, and, and actually after the, the scare about her health, uh, she's looking really quite well and happy at the moment, which is quite a relief for, for all of us, especially those of us who support the monarchy. Yes. Yeah. I mean, know, I mean, she apparently issues she, she, she was animated, it said, as she spoke to horticulturists and garden designers and at one point joking about the appalling weather in her coronation year. Have you been to the flower show? I haven't, actually. I, 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 I keep on getting invitations and then never have time to get over there. Yeah. It's, uh, but it's, it's a great event. I wouldn't mind seeing the Queen's Platinum Jubilee Garden, which apparently features laser-cut steel silhouettes of the Queen surrounded by 70 planted terracotta pots representing each year of her reign. Yeah. How good's that? It's... Uh, it certainly caught the imagination of the public here. It's, uh, yeah, it, 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 I'm told there's quite a queue to go and see it. Yeah. So, well, uh, uh, if you come over, you, you, you'll have to join the line. I'm <laughs> join the line. Well, I'll tell you where there is a queue. What's the story about beer? I mean, what is this about a beer shortage? This, this may be the biggest crisis of them all. Forget, forget party. Well, we're about to have another party, gate. I mean, this is, uh, you know, this is a summer being ruined by uh, over, over a pay dispute in Lancashire, but, uh, which is the northwest of England, for, uh, for those of you who don't yeah, know the uh, yeah. geography of England. But it's, um, it's uh, I mean, actually, the serious side of this is um, this is another sign of growing militancy amongst the unions. We just actually yesterday had a vote from the transport union, the RMT, uh, to basically bring the whole rail network to a halt. And uh, we're going to see more and more of this. Uh, they have a political agenda to bring down the government. Uh, mm. in, in the case of the beer, the beer guys, it's a, a union called the GMB. Uh, and uh, they, they want to change the government. They see strikes as a way of doing that. And, of course, they're using the cost of living crisis, the problems with wages as a, as a useful tool to, to push that agenda. Well, just for our benefit of our, our viewers at home here, this is the Budweiser or Budweiser Brewing Group, as David said, in Lancashire. But they brew Budweiser, Stella Artois, Beck's, Boddington's, and mm. they export pale ale. Now, viewers here will be wondering and saying, well, hang on, Stella Artois, Budweiser, we don't mind that stuff here. I mean, are we going to be going out without beer here as well? I, I'm not sure. It's the world's biggest brewery, though, and it does, yes. it does export a lot, you know. <laughs> I'll tell you, I'll tell you, you know, we, we, we have a major crisis on our hands. Barbecues are not going to be the same this summer. I'm, I'm, already, I'm already stocking up. Actually, I heard this was coming. And uh, I went I went to the, I bought three cases of beer at the weekend. Just stop me off chance. That'll last, that'll last you a week, knowing David Maddox, I can tell you. But no, seriously, <laughs> seriously, uh, the first day of the strike action, I understand, will be on June 6th. And they say more dates to follow. Now, are they warning drinkers that they go thirsty this summer? Are they prepared to go on with this? I suspect they are. I think once you... I mean, I, I, I have to say, I, I, I have to admit, that back in my distant past, I was a union rep for, uh, for, uh, for journalists. And uh, once you make the decision to strike, 
it's very hard to go back on it because mm. uh, you've you know you're already losing your wages and things like that. So uh, I think I think uh, I think they may well push ahead with it. Have you got the same problem there though that we have here? I see that the worker is complaining that the bosses have slashed their wages during this cost of living thing, and the union wanted a three percent pay increase for 2022 that year, this year and next year with increases in overtime rates. They're saying, are they not, and that's what's happening here, that given the cost of living crisis and high inflation, what the worker is being offered amounts to a pay cut in real terms. Yeah, and that is, that's true, actually. And that, uh, in that sense, I have some sympathy with them. Uh, because uh, here we have inflation that's around 10%. Yeah. Yeah. I'm told it may well rise to about 14 soon. Yeah. And, you know, a, a pay offer of 3%. That's in it. fact, we've just been offered the same yeah. the same one. And it is uh, it is a real terms cut. Absolutely. But on the it. other hand, if you get a 14% cut, yeah. uh, a rise, it's... Uh, the problems, wow. the I mean, problem, things get out of hand. The problems worsen. Good on you, David. Good to talk to you. Yeah. Uh, we'll be talking about Boris next week again, I expect. And that Sue Gray report is <laughs> out in the next couple of hours, I have to say. There he is, David Maddox. And you can read him. It's easy to read. He writes so splendidly, express.co.uk. He is the political editor of the Express Online. David, thank you for your time. See you next week. Thanks, Alan. There he is, Cheers. David Maddox. Look. The incoming Labor government would be grossly mistaken if it believed that the election result means a national embrace of what Labor offered up during the course of the campaign. Labor cannot run away from a primary vote of 32.8%, which means 67.2% of those who voted didn't want Labor as their party of first choice. Oppositions don't usually win elections, as I've said, governments lose them. And so it is with the Morrison government. Mr Morrison delivered for Labor. As I said earlier this week, in so doing, he surrendered traditional liberal values or, as one writer said, he's bulldozed his party into electoral oblivion. In short, he had much more to do with Albanese's triumph than did Albanese. The quiet Australians spoke and said of Morrison that they'd had enough. I've argued for months that the coalition would have won the election with a different leader. Anthony Albanese has now inherited a raft of problems on the world stage and at home. Well, let's have a look at some. Firstly... Two-thirds of the nation don't want your party. And take two leading lights of Labor, Jason Clare and Bill Shorten, both had swings against them on Saturday night. And in the case of Bill Shorten, he was nowhere near 50% of the primary vote and suffered a small swing against. The Keneally result in Fowler, of course, we know about. The swing against Labor, an eye-watering 18.6%. However, the Labor Party, unlike the Liberals, in traditional Labor territory, polled very well. Tanya Plibersek in Sydney was well over 50% of the primary vote and a swing to her. Linda Burney, who'll be the new Indigenous Affairs Minister in Barton, was over 50% of the primary vote and a swing to her. Tony Burke, who'll be a prominent figure in the government, got well over 50% of the primary vote and a swing. The leader, Anthony Albanese, gained 55% of the primary and a swing of almost 4%. Ed Husick in Chifley, over 52% of the primary vote. Now, people wouldn't vote Liberal because they argued, perhaps unfairly, that a vote for the Liberals was a vote for Scott Morrison, whether we like it or not. That is what they were saying. In WA, where the Liberals were absolutely smashed, the swings in the Labor seats were significant. In the seat of Fremantle, almost 7%. In the seat of Burke, the swing was almost 12%. As the state election proved in WA, the Liberals 
are virtually in no man's land. Jim Chalmers, who will be treasurer from the Queensland seat of Rankin, is well below 50% of the primary, but he did get a swing. And Meryl Swanson, worthy of a place in the Labor ministry, was able to hang on in the Hunter Valley seat of Paterson, where all sorts of confusion swirled over coal mining and jobs. The interesting seat of Hunter, vacated by Joel Fitzgibbon and thought to be winnable by the Nationals, saw an extraordinary result. Labor had a swing to them of one and a half percent. The primary vote of 39 percent is way below the 50. But there were two surprises in the Hunter. The Nationals expected to do better, even though they had a swing of 4.6%, but a primary vote of only 28%. But the One Nation vote was down by almost 12%. So Labor will hang on in the heart of coal mining country. Now, what do we make of all of this? There are two conclusions. The Blue Ribbon Labor seats stay as Blue Ribbon, even though the primary vote for the Labor Party is awful. But for the Liberal Party, they are in all sorts of trouble at the next election. Safe seats and blue ribbon seats have either been wiped out or the margins have been so significantly reduced as to make once safe seats marginal. I'll look at that tomorrow night. It's not hopeless. However, and it's a big however, for Labor, they don't want to get ahead of themselves. The fact that they've won government on the basis of preferences might lead some to think they have a mandate. The figures suggest otherwise. As things stand, the primary vote in the House of Representatives is less than 33%. No party since Federation has gone into government with less support. But then, if the Labor diehards want to really shake at the knees, they need to scrutinise the Senate result. In New South Wales, the Labor vote is not even 30%, 29.8%. In Queensland, the Senate Labor vote, 24.3%. In Tasmania, the Senate Labor vote, 27.3%. It's marginally better in Victoria, 31%, and marginally better in South Australia, 32%. And in WA, where the Liberals were wiped out, it's 34%. But none of the figures suggest that any war, uh, any more than a third of voters chose the party in government. It's not only the Liberal Party that's got some soul-searching to do. When the dust settles, there'll be a lot of questions asked as to why the Labor vote in the House of Representatives and the Senate was so unnervingly poor. So, when you hear someone in government talk in the months ahead about a Labor mandate, your immediate response ought to be, hang on a minute, two-thirds of Australians didn't want you. Well, just before we go, one more thing on this Liberal leadership. Word is that Susan Lee is shaping up as the favourite for the deputy's role. She's been the member for Farrah since 2001. In the last parliament, she was the Environment Minister and didn't make much of an impression. Susan Lee needs to do much better if she's going to win the respect of voters. Firstly, her pre-selection was under threat. She was part of this push, along with Trent Zimmerman and Alex Hawke, for Scott Morrison and the factional bosses to secure her pre-selection because she was a sitting member. But it's because, like them, she would have struggled to win pre-selection if members had been allowed to vote. Put simply, Susan Lee thinks it's OK to run roughshod over members' rights. The Niloquin local, Christian Ellis, wanted to put his hand up and challenge Susan Lee, but was prevented by the Liberal executive from doing so. His argument was on the issue of water, which I've been going on about for years. Susan Lee does not represent locals' concerns. The Murray-Darling Basin plan is a huge issue in her electorate. I know the New South Wales Riverina irrigation farmers were pushing for change 
in the electorate, wanting someone who is fair dinkum about returning more water in the Murray-Darling River system to the farmers. There's been a push in that neck of the woods for years to put a freeze on further buybacks of irrigators' water entitlements. Now, all you have to know is that Malcolm Turnbull is the architect of the Murray-Darling Basin Plan, so you can imagine how much of a dog's breakfast it is. It's the reason why the Shooters, Fishers and Farmers Party have made inroads in that electorate, picking up a New South Wales state seat. So Susan Lee will need to really step up if she fancies herself to be deputy leader material. One thing's for certain, her candidature for the role is more palatable than that of Bridget Archer. Actually, I apologise, it's nearly so laughable, I can't say it out loud, but the one-term MP, Bridget Archer, is considering putting a hand up for the deputy leadership. She's been there five minutes. She retained the Northern Tasmanian seat, or she hopes she has, of Bass, but she's only in front by over a 1,000 votes, with 75% of the votes counted. That clearly doesn't humble her. Instead, she feels emboldened enough to come out and speak to the Australian newspaper and tell the journalist that she's considering a tilt for the deputy leadership. Archer is a political neophyte. She said, the centre is where Australia lies electorally, and that's where the future success of the Liberal Party lies. So if I can play some part in achieving that move back to the more centrist politics, then I would seek to do so, unquote. Someone should tell Bridget Archer this. Declaring that you're a centrist means one thing and only one thing, and that's that you don't believe in much. Some politicians are smart enough to mask this by labelling themselves as pragmatist. Bridget Archer, what exactly do you believe in? Go away. What are your policy ideas? Show us. But better still, don't put your hand up. We just shake our collective heads. The problem with the Liberal Party is that the talent pool is very shallow, nearly touching the bottom. People like Christian Porter were hounded out, and then people like Alan Tudge have been put on the back burner despite no finding against him. It's a long road home for the Liberals, and it needn't have been like this. By the way, has someone spoken to Peter Costello? He would eat this Labor lot and still not feel satisfied. That's it from me tonight. See you tomorrow night on ADH-TV. Good night.